0: Hey folks, Ann Milgram here. This week, we're bringing you a special episode of Stay Tuned. Last Wednesday's attacks on our nation's capital have brought the debate about the appropriate police response into sharp focus. And so I'm joined today by my friends and former colleagues, former police chiefs Scott Thompson and Chuck Ramsey. Scott Thompson served the Camden department in New Jersey for 25 years before retiring in 2019. I appointed Scott as chief when I served as New Jersey attorney general. And together we dismantled the city's troubled police department and rebuilt it from the ground up. Scott deserves all the credit for the amazing work he's done there. And today crime rates are at an historic low in the city. I spoke to Scott on Stay Tuned over the summer as the conversation around police reform gripped the country. Chuck Ramsey was the commissioner of the Philadelphia police department. And before that, the DC police chief, He's now an influential voice on issues of policing and frequently appears as a contributor on CNN. Chuck also was involved with President Obama's 21st Century Task Force on Policing. As the country faces potential for more violence and the president has now been impeached a second time, I thought it was the perfect time to come together with Scott and Chuck to help us make sense of what's happening and the pathway forward. Welcome Chiefs Thompson and Ramsey. There is nobody I'd rather talk to about what's happening in the United States and what happened last Wednesday at the Capitol from a law enforcement perspective than the two of you. You are my two favorite police chiefs in America. And so both of you are now retired, which is why we get to have this conversation. But, of course, Chief Ramsey uh, oversaw the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, the Chicago Police Department, and... I think when I met you, you were in charge of the Philadelphia Police Department at that time. And of course, you were just across the river from Camden, where Scott Thompson uh, was the chief of police for more than a decade. Um, and of course, as as many of our listeners know, Scott and I worked closely together. And both of you are, I think, your, your leaders also... Just to frame this for folks, because of your work with communities, Chief Ramsey, obviously you're on the president's uh, post-Ferguson commission, uh, the 21st Century Policing Commission that looked at policing in America. Um, Chief Thompson has been a leader with working in the Camden community. And so I think a lot of folks, what what a lot of us have done is have the first reaction about what did the president do last Wednesday? He was impeached today for inciting essentially an insurrection for inciting violence on the Capitol. The Capitol walls were breached for the first time since 1812. And so, but I think a lot of the attention has rightfully been on the political questions, the legal questions. And there's been some conversations about law enforcement, but this is the conversation in some ways I, I most want to have, because as I sat there watching, you know, all of us watched in real time. I watched Chief Ramsey on CNN and like all of us were watching him real time for hours as the Capitol lay siege. And so I think the things I'd I'd love to cover today are, you know, why do we think that happened? And I know we're all sort of using the information that we have publicly. What were the errors that took place? What are the questions we should be asking now? And really just getting a sense from both of you in a little bit of depth as to what went wrong last Wednesday. You know, and I guess I'll start You know, I'll start with you, Chief Ramsey, because you know the DC Police Department. You know the Capitol Police. Was it preventable that essentially looks like thousands of individuals were able to enter the United States Capitol? When if we if we were sort of doing a hot wash, which is you know the law enforcement term, something happens, you come back later, and you sit in a room and you say, okay, what what went wrong? Where are those points? I mean, where would you where would you start on this?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing that that struck me when I was watching it on uh, television was that the uh, Capitol Police uh, didn't seem to be really prepared. Anyone can get overwhelmed at any particular point in time. It just, it depends on numbers, but it happened so easily.
0: Oh, meanwhile, up on the steps of the backside of the Capitol, we're seeing protesters overcome the police
2: Behind the scenes. This is incredible. We're in, we're in, we're in, we're in.
1: But that's the first thing that struck me because I've, I worked in DC uh, for nine years, worked with the U.S. Capitol Police, Park Police, and I know how we always coordinated security whenever there was a major event taking place. I mean, think about it. You had a joint session of Congress taking place. That by itself would have kicked the security level up to a higher level because you've got all of our leaders, with the exception of the president, in the same place at the same time. I mean, the only difference between that and the State of the Union, I mean, you don't have the justices of the Supreme Court and, you know, the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff and things like that. But I mean, you've got from the House and the Senate, you have all of our elected leaders.
0: Yeah, 435 elected officials. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I really, you know, that caught me off guard as to why. Now, there'll be a lot of deep dives into this. So we'll, we'll learn more and more uh, as time goes on as to why something like that uh, occurred. Where was the intel? Where was the information? I mean, there was a lot of information that was open source. I mean, it wasn't as if, you know, you had to somehow, you know, tap somebody's phone or get it off a satellite or whatever. I mean, it was right there on the websites. And having seen what happened in the spring in Michigan, for an example, when they took over the capital there, many of them were armed I mean, it's not as if these these far right wing groups aren't capable of doing something like that. And the rhetoric had been getting, you know, heated for quite some time. You add on top of that, the president, other people that are his uh, uh, supporters uh, just pouring gasoline on the fire. I mean, this was something I I didn't expect a breach of the Capitol, but it's not surprising that violence actually uh took place in the city. So
0: uh, Michael Chertoff, who is the Homeland Security head, said, you know, you didn't have to read the websites, you just had to look at the paper to know that this was yeah. ramping up. And so I, I think a lot of a lot of folks are asking the question. I mean I was also surprised to see that the Capitol police were in their regular uniforms. Like right. I would I would have expected them and I think maybe people don't sort of understand but like what's the for for you or for Chief Thompson, like w- like just so people understand you know you've got a big event you're going to mobilize like how do you think about the processes or are there processes in place to figure out like what's the level of risk how should the officers be dressed how do you think about a problem or a challenge like this because i think your point is right that even i i think it's actually a great question which is even not entering the capital just with that volume of people with that existing rhetoric, you would have, without even knowing whether or not they were trying to, I think you would, have, you would have staffed this probably differently. Well,
1: you know, one of the things you do is establish a hard perimeter around the Capitol, and then you'd have an interior perimeter.
0: And so a hard perimeter means like? Well, well-staffed barriers,
1: uh, and, but something that would make it very difficult for them to penetrate. Now, you mentioned uniforms. There is a psychology of crowds and a lot is made of, you know, officers that get in full riot gear. Are you really causing the crowd to become more violent and so forth? So I can understand how initially you may have officers that are in, I believe they were more bike uniforms than they were anything else. But we always had platoons that were already in the heavy gear, out of sight, but ready to be mobilized at any given time to come in. Uh, at a moment's notice and take the place of those individuals that aren't properly geared up, I'll say. They didn't have that. I mean, and, and and I don't understand why, because that would be normally what you would do is have them in reserve that already have the riot gear on. You'd have the Metropolitan Police Department, which is larger. And I remember Capitol Police is 2000 officers. It's a big police department. Yeah, in I, I read right. 20,
0: 2,300. Second only
1: to MPD, which is right around 4,000. And so between those two agencies, and then of course the U.S. Park Police is always there to assist as well, Had more than enough people that would have been available without the National Guard. And I just don't understand why that wasn't activated earlier. Now, understanding the politics of the Hill, and it's not just a police chief that can say, here's my operational plan. Here's how we're going to do it. I mean, they report to a police board, which is the Senate Sergeant at Arms, House Sergeant at Arms, architect of the Capitol, you know, so there were barriers there.
0: I saw that. And that's, that's different. Like in, in Philly or DC or, or Scott in Camden, like you would have been the chief of police. You would have made the call on. Yeah.
1: And you just, and you tell the mayor, Hey mayor, here's, here's our plan. Here's what we're doing. And that's pretty much it. But in the capital, because uh, politics and and I don't know if there was something else at play. It's possible uh, because something does look a little fishy in a, in a couple areas. But not trying to you know say anything beyond what we know now. It still was baffling. I'll put yeah. it that
0: way. I feel like there are a lot of questions that have to be answered. I think it it feels it feels off and the question is why? Yeah. Chief Thompson. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Thank you for having me on here with uh, with uh, Commissioner Ramsey and you know this is uh, unique for me cuz you you made me and chuck molded me.
0: <laughs> We're like your parents.
3: <laughs> so uh, this is kind of like me being with my two mentors here. Yeah, so I'll be on my best behavior. But no as a as a law enforcement executive or a former law enforcement executive Uh, I, like many people, had a lot of questions as I was watching this unfold, just knowing that in preparation for an event such as this, or on any given day, the nation's capital, uh, the capital building in the nation's capital is going to have multi-perimeter defense in depth, uh, contingency plans, no single point of failure, and where was that? Why wasn't that in place? And then particularly when you when you juxtapose that to the positions or the posture, I should say, that law enforcement had several months before with the Black Lives Matter movement that was taking place. And I mean, I think there's a there's a photograph that's circulating where I think it was on the steps of of the Lincoln Memorial. You had you had a few hundred National Guard officers. I mean, people couldn't even get they wouldn't be able to get up two or three steps, let alone overthrow the entire facility. That, oh, by the way, also had all of our nation's legislators in it at the same time. So there are a lot of questions that need answers to. And I I, I think that this certainly warrants a 9-11 type commission to look into it. Uh, I'm already seeing, I've I, I seen statements come out that are uh, folks are, are contradicting each other with regards to the requests for the uh, National Guard, who who said yes, who said no, what were the response times uh, when things were going bad and the call for assistance uh, came out? Why did that take so long? Right? I mean, this is this is an event like like Chuck just said earlier, where we should be able to handle this type of insurgent on any given day, right? Because the, the bad guys are never going to send us a telegram telling us that they're coming. And these were all lessons we learned after nine eleven, so that we would be prepared for such a, a, an attack, particularly upon a location that we anticipate that to occur. You, you, when you look at this from a perspective of that we, we knew there were going to be issues and to not be prepared for it when, we, when it was telegraphed that this was going to occur, you know, there's a, there are a lot of questions that need answers. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I was reading the Norfolk, the piece about the Norfolk FBI providing an intelligence product today with pretty concrete information about people being in convoys going to Washington. And then you see some of the stuff that was on Parler and it's the, you know, stop this deal, siege the Capitol, a lot of stuff about Pelosi, a lot of stuff about Pence. And again, I mean, we all know the question is what's actionable, right? Intelligence isn't, information isn't always something you can act on, but it it did look like there was a, a lot there that that would have raised you to go to the next level, right? And what you did, or at least to ask a lot of questions and to be prepared. The other thing I think is is interesting is, you know, and, and we haven't seen Chris Ray yet. We've seen the deputy director of the FBI, but the initial statement was that there was not intelligence. And then you find out that the FBI knocked on 12 doors, talked to people. There was an effort to arrest the leader of the Proud Boys before this happened. So, you know, people were taking actions, right? And there were, they were mobilizing in some ways and that becomes really inconsistent with any argument of being totally surprised by it. And so I I do think there's a need to understand deeper. So how much do you think, I mean, you you just brought up the the photograph and I think we've all seen it and talked about it. It is really hard to imagine that if this was a Black Lives Matter protest, that it wouldn't have looked exactly the same as it did last summer, right? And that was, I think, I can't remember. I read the number. There were thousands of National Guard troops who were mobilized. They were in riot gear. This time, I think there were 340 National Guards people mobilized. Like the the sort of discrepancy is huge. And a question I have for you both is that you know the mayor of DC was very upset with the Black Lives Matter protests because even though I think that there were a number of sort of classic law enforcement techniques that you would take if you knew there was going to be a protest, there was a. It really does look like it was it was a just an incredible show of force that was not linked to the amount of threat that that we were seeing from protests nationally, and so it, it felt like there was too much force during the summer. Then what we see is this sort of effort from the mayor and others to basically say, "Don't send me," and and I understand this but I think it may have been an overcorrection, which is don't send me all those National Guards people that I haven't asked you for, right? Like don't don't flood the city with all these folks. And so I guess the question is like, in some ways it's, it's, I guess there's two separate questions. One is how much of this is just an implicit bias going the other way, basically assuming that the sort of Trump supporters who are overwhelmingly white men We're not going to be violent or not going to be dangerous. And then the second sort of flip side is how much did D.C. and the folks in D.C. leadership think we shouldn't have done what we did in June. We went too hard. So we're going to pull back now because we don't want it to. We made a mistake and now we're sort of, you know, working off that mistake.
1: Well, there's a couple of things there. If I can kind of jump in. First of all, I didn't criticize the level of, of activation during the summer. Some of the protests that happened in cities around the country uh, in the wake of the George Floyd murder uh, did turn violent. And so, you know, the level of preparation there and one could argue if too much or whatever, but I've always been of the school. Uh, you know, you, you plan for the worst and hope for the best, you know, but the same thing should have applied on the 6th of January. There was enough information out there. You know, uh, the 6th of January was a targeted date. That's when the certification of the uh, electoral college was going to take place. The president himself had targeted that date. There was a lot of heated rhetoric around that. How could you not be ready at that level, if not beyond? Because again, not only do you have, I mean, the people doing the certification, it occurs during a joint session. So you've got all your elected leaders in one place that, I mean... I I just don't understand that. Now, having said that, I'm not trying to get around the fact that there's bias, because there was bias. There's no question about that. I mean, you know, the perception of, you know, who's going to be, you know, likely to cause violence and who's going to be more friendly. And if you got a bunch of black folks walking around with signs saying abolish the police and defund the police versus a bunch of white guys with blue lives matter signs and all this kind of stuff, you know. Is that a reason to think that one's more dangerous than the other? I mean, I think we learned that you you can't, you know, you can't just go by something like that, you know? So there was bias. There's no question it was bias, but they should have been adequately prepared for both.
0: Well, this is, I guess, a question because the, the June piece, it did feel like they were doing what you would, what you just went through, the sort of classic things you would do. They had the platoons nearby. They had a, the hard perimeter. They
1: were ready. They were prepared.
0: So this is, this becomes a question. And again, I think, you know, it's a, I think it is a legitimate question of there's a process to figure it out. Right. And there's a certain playbook that you play to your point of like the hardened exteriors and the, the uniforms are how you think about it. And the, the way I guess the, the sort of question I would have here is like, if the process was right in June or at least closer to where you would have expected it to be like it is even more jarring that it didn't happen right now because police departments, I mean, Scott, you can talk to, talk to this probably, but like there's a lot of rules and processes. It's if people imagine like loosely run organizations, that's not your police department, right? Like they're hierarchical. They have, you know, standard operating procedures.
1: There's another part of this too. Is, Scott, can I just, you know, I'm over 70. I won't remember if I don't get it. <laughs> but there's a pol- political part of this, too. I mean, the mayor didn't want it to look a particular way and, you know, have the National Guard, but just have them, you know, uh, in non-riot gear, just directing traffic and so forth, sensitive to what happened in June. When operational planning should not be done by politicians. It should be done by the professionals that know what the hell they're doing. And I, I, I'm sorry, but that, that's a part of it that just can't be overlooked. Now, I'm not saying that she was the reason why they weren't prepared, because I don't believe that's the case.
0: No, neither am I. But I
1: do think that that plays into the psyche a little bit.
0: And I don't want to blame her either, because the DOD folks, the Department of Defense folks, they, they said, you know, we don't like the look of it.
1: Right, exactly. But that's a political statement in and of itself. It's, you know, we don't like the
3: look of it. And I think one of the other legitimate questions that I've heard asked in, in this process, and I myself have, have observed, is one, as, as the commission just said, there's the issue of, of preparation and the lack thereof. But then the other is the response. And when you juxtapose it to the, the response, once there was the moment of contact between police and protesters slash rioters. Uh, if you were to put them side by side, the picture of January 6th looked a lot softer than it did in what law enforcement's response was to the Black Lives Matter movements uh, on, on, on street corners across the country. And even when the Capitol Police were, they were on their back foot the entire time. And even when they were being attacked, there never seemed to be a, a response that was, would be deemed to be excessive in its totality. And I think it was the, uh, Chuck, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it was the head of the Noble who said that if, you know, and, it, and it's a it's, it's a reasonable question here is that if if those were, if it, if it was black folks storming the Capitol building, uh, I think the statement was we would still be put in toe tags on bodies right now.
1: Well, he's right. He's right in my opinion. I mean, uh, again, Uh, that's where bias comes in. That's where all these different things come to play. I mean, why didn't you even have undercover cops in the crowd? I mean, both at the rally and walking down Pennsylvania Avenue saying, hey, these guys are fired up. You better be ready because they're headed your way. You know, I mean, just simple stuff like that, you know. And apparently that was not the case. So yeah, they were totally unprepared, Some of it had to do, no question in my mind, had to do with the race of the individuals. It had to do with the fact that they were right-wing extremists as opposed to left. I I think all these dynamics played in, and that's where it, it really points to one important thing. Police can't afford to get caught up in any of that stuff. You've got a job to do to protect the public, to protect that building in this case. doesn't matter who it is. Your job is to gear up and be ready, no matter what. Don't get caught up in the political rhetoric and all this other stuff. Or I think, oh, these are the good guys. These are the bad guys or what. That's not your job. And the minute you go down that path, you're going to have a problem.
0: You know, one of the things, it's interesting you say that too. So I think there are a lot of failures. I mean, there's a leadership failure, obviously. But then there's also, you know, a question of, when I was watching some of the officers, and, and we should say some of the officers were heroic and did yeah, unbelievable yeah. things, right? And, you know, we talked a little bit before about Officer Goodman, Chief Thompson mentioned him. We we should talk a little bit about what he did to basically take the rioters away from the Senate where there were senators. And they had not, you know, they literally were securing the door at like the minute by that himself. was happening, yeah. by him by himself. And so, so I think, you know, we should talk a little bit about him and some of the heroic things. We should also talk about, you know, my experience, again, with the police is command and control in these circumstances, and that, you know, it looked the exact opposite. There were individual officers. They were, it, it just, they were outmatched. They were, like, so so. there's a way in which I think there's huge questions of bias and politics. There's also this question of what happens when you, like, and I don't know if this is a fair assessment, it looks like they had zero control, and they just lost control. And so, you know, they lost that sort of leadership, and and the sort of training of officers to be in a certain place and act a certain way and do a certain thing—that is coming from that command structure.
1: Well, this was a failure of leadership. There's no question about that. The men and women were left short. I mean, it's not their fault they didn't have enough people there. It wasn't their fault that things got that chaotic, but the leadership uh, just was lacking. It just wasn't there.
3: I, I also think that look, there's there are a lot of instances that occurred which are emblematic of the issues in policing nationally. When we talk about the direction in which we we want policing to go with how police use force, I can't think of a better example than the video of watching Officer Eugene Goodman de-escalate that situation when confronted with that angry mob. Now, if, if he had engaged in a warrior mentality and not a guardian, if he had stood his ground, first of all, he probably would have been overpowered. And now this mob would have been armed with his weapon and all of his ammunition and no communication to anyone else that this now had taken place. But instead, you know, some people would say or they would interpret what he did as, as retreating. And it was he was tactically repositioning the entire time. Uh, it was it was brilliant what he did and how he did it uh, in a way in which he diverted them away from really what their objective was. You know, he was brilliantly using the Jedi mind trick on these, on these folks to get them into an isolated area where he, the entire time he was communicating with reinforcements who were then able to come in and they were able to contain that group that had very bad intentions. When you look at that, that is something that if, if, Officer Eugene Goodman can do that in, in, in that type of situation. There's a lot of lessons that can be learned for the rest of, of policing across this country. And then I'm quite certain he was scared in that moment, right? But he didn't automatically resort to deadly force because one, it wasn't the safest move for him. And on top of that, had he done that, in addition to being able to potentially compromise his own weapon over in, into their possession by being overrammed. There would have been a strong likelihood that if if he did resort to his firearm and started shooting, other people would have been hit that and 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 would have could have died in in that instance. So I think that that you know kudos to that. And then you know also when you look at just the the, again, I don't think that in inner cities across the country. uh, I know people I've spoke that have called me from from Camden and saying. You know, boy, that I I don't know if if that would have been handled differently if uh, if those folks looked differently, and you know, people, every major city, every city that's going to have a demonstration is going to be is going to be confronted with that issue of this under-response versus over-response.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's such an important point. I also think, I mean, we should talk about for just a minute that there were five deaths and then there was also a suicide of a Capitol officer, but there were five deaths, mostly were due to medical conditions. There was only one police shooting, police-involved shooting. And so, but there are people who died. And the, the thing I was very focused on also were the pipe bombs there was a pipe bomb outside the the Democratic National Committee one outside the the Republican National Committee there were Molotov cocktails there was a the truck that had you know the assault weapons and the ammunition and so i think my my next question for you both is like you look at this and i don't think i understood on wednesday i didn't i didn't have all those pieces of information together i don't think i understood how close this could have come, like how close they actually came to it being far, far worse than it was. And so I'd love to hear like, you know, how, how much of a risk do you think this posed? Just looking at now that we know all the weapons, now that we know that we had, you know, Proud Boys and Three Percenters and a lot of, you know, right-wing extremists, hate-filled groups that have been known to use violence in the past. And so like, you know, how should people think about that?
1: Well, I mean, you raise a good point. I mean, and it's really kind of scary to think with five people did you think you got off lucky. But we did. It could have been far worse. I mean, if people brought that stuff there with something in mind. That was not an accident. Now, they weren't able to execute it. Question again is why? You know, what, what happened? Who were they? What were their real intentions? I mean, you see the one individual with zip ties, uh, the, you know, flex cuffs in the house chamber. I mean, what are you going to do with those things?
0: Yeah, maybe you can just explain what they're used for. I mean, Chief Thompson had actually Well, mass
1: said... arrests, mass arrests to, to to restrain people. Now, my understanding is he may have taken them out of one of the storage lockers in the Capitol, but the fact that he had them, what were you gonna do with something like that? You know, there were a lot of people there who weren't thinking about simply, you know, protesting the election. They had a they had a different agenda. And it wasn't for fast thinking on a partisan capital. Police officers were able to get members to a safe location. And Officer Goodman, who, thinking very quickly, didn't take them down that one corridor, which would have led them right into the Senate chambers. This would have been a lot, a lot worse. It really would have been a lot worse. And so there's, again, and Scott is right, there's got to be a 9-11 type commission. There's got to be a deep dive in this, let the cars fall where they may. But there are a lot of people whose fingerprints are on this that we're going to find over time that, you know, either dropped the ball or there was some intentional actions on the part of a few um, that really uh, led to all this.
0: Just to stay for a second on the, the it, it feels like it was a decision to protect the members. I mean, it feels a little like there was this sort of moment of, you know, people are flooding into the Capitol. And the one thing that the Capitol Police did. I think really heroically was basically figure out how to how to get the members to safety. Do either of you know? I mean, is that the standard protocol? Yes, it is.
1: If there's a choice between people and property, you always go with people. And there is a protocol. There is a location in the Capitol uh, where uh, members are taken and, and secured. Yeah, all that stuff is all pre-planned.
0: Yeah, it was a pretty heroic. I mean, it's it's an amazing thing, and I think in in some ways that maybe why all of us sort of on Wednesday night didn't appreciate. The full severity of it is because the members were able to all you know walk out unharmed. Essentially, well,
3: I, I think that's that's the one thing that was successful was the was the, the you know the, the Alamo aspect of it of, of the safe room of getting people back into the, the you know the elected leaders safely sequestered and secured, uh, and probably in large part because of the heroic actions of, of Eugene Goodman and, and several other individuals. What we do know is that there were systemic failures throughout, which means that the reason why this was resolved in a way, as Chuck said, with, with just and only five deaths that we have thus far, uh, was because of the heroic actions of, of individuals, much of which we probably won't know for quite some time until they start to sit down and, and, and discuss an interview, which really then makes us question uh, what would have happened had those pipe bombs detonated and the diversionary tactics, because they clearly appeared that they would have been successful. And then we question the militia type of people who did have the flex cuffs and did make it to the Senate floor, uh, or the, the same people that had erected uh, a a hangman station outside of of the, the building, uh, a quite sturdy one as well. I mean, it wasn't symbolic. They built steps to that, too. With a uh, with a functioning you know sturdy noose as well, uh, and I, we had heard the cries on videotapes of uh, traders get the noose or traders get the rope is what they were saying, and they were looking to hang the vice president. Yeah, I was going to say
0: that the chant of the fine pence in the background is really, it's, it's absolutely chilling. Why do you think there weren't more arrests that day?
1: I've asked myself that question because I, I think you you would have had more. But one thing about mass arrests that a lot of people have to really consider, that actually takes away from your resources because when you take mass arrests, now, you know, there's a processing function, but all that should have been pre-staged and pre-planned in case there was a mass arrest where you would have had arrest teams, you would have had processing teams, you would have had all that it doesn't appear that they had any of that. And maybe that's why, you know, they weren't made by the cops that were actually trying to clear the building because they didn't have that as part of the plan. I don't know that for sure, but I do know that uh, it it does take resources uh, to do that. There was a lot of videotape that they're going through now. They're making a lot of arrests now, but certainly it would have been a lot easier if some of them could have been taken into custody at that moment. But again, I mean, when you're overwhelmed, it's not always the right time to make an arrest without crowd just taking the arrestee away from you or or having, you know, some of your officers get injured just trying to make an arrest. So I, I wasn't on the ground there. So it's hard to
3: say. I share your concerns with in in question with that, particularly after the cavalry had arrived. And the situation did seem to be contained. And there was plenty of media cameras set up around the exit. And nobody everybody was there was calm. Calmness. Uh, there was order. It was actually there was an orderly exodus of the building. Uh, and at that point in time, I, you know, I, I really didn't couldn't understand why. I mean, to Chuck's point, I understand in the throes in the fog of war, the objective is not taking people into custody at that point in time. But once once the situation had been contained, then at that point in time, why not lock the doors and say now you can't leave, right? We're, now we, we, we've we've got the resources here that we should have had in the first place, but we finally have them here now. And nobody's leaving. Everybody's being arrested, detained, debriefed, uh, and to just let people kind of walk out the door. I, I would like to know the answer to to, the, to that as well. That takes organization to be able to do that. And apparently, they, they weren't they
1: weren't very organized. I mean, the Capitol Police, and I'm surprised because I've always seen them as a, a very professional agency, but their leadership really, really, truly dropped a ball on this. And there may be some other factors, but. I mean, there, there's no way that should have gone down the way it
0: did. Well, it, it's still leadership, even if it is other factors. So even if there's politics, once once we know that there's some intel that's being passed of a problem, and it doesn't, again, feel like it was that much of a surprise that this was out there, that and the, the sort of chatter was was very significant at that point in time. Leadership is telling the politicians, I you know, we need the people right? Like we need the, we need the teams of folks there. So it, it does feel like a, a failure of leadership. The other thing that sort of is going through my mind as we're talking about this is just how each error compounds and, and creates a problem for the next step, right? So there's a failure of, of sort of harnessing and being able to use the proactive intelligence. And again, we don't know why, but it's pretty clear that there was some information about the threats and the threat level. Then there's the just, what we would expect as the standard staffing for, you know, the way that you would approach thousands of people coming to the Capitol when you have a joint session of Congress. And so those two failures get you to this position where you're very under-resourced and you have to make these decisions about, do you, you know, protect the building? Do you protect member? Like it all sort of, do you make arrests? Do you not make arrests? It does feel to me like, you know, one, it, it just snowballed into a giant, a giant problem. Do you think, what are what are the other questions you both are asking yourselves? Like, as you as you watch this and you think about it, like, what are the things that you think, like, I would like to understand more?
1: The intelligence failures. I mean, it's something I still can't get my head around because it's not like you had to call the CIA to try to get information. I mean, it was out there. This wasn't a secret. I mean, maybe the only people who didn't realize potentially it was a problem on, on January 6th was the Capitol Police. I don't know. But I, I still I still don't get it. And, and you know, even with the FBI uh, field office sending information up, who did they send it to? Who got it? Who's responsible for getting it to the people who really need to have it? I mean, all these things, you know, I mean, they tabletop this stuff. At least they should. Now, I don't know if they ever tabletop getting a breach inside the Capitol building or not, but they should have. I mean, you know, you, you tabletop these things, the what ifs and the worst case scenarios. I mean, there's security around that building. But remember, after 9-11, they, they did a lot around the security, but it was mostly for vehicles, you know, uh, even though 9-11 was airplanes. But, you know, I remember kind of wondering about that one. But trying to put a security fence around the Capitol, the architect of the Capitol, dead against it. There are security steps that should have been taken years ago that weren't taken. And now maybe it'll be revisited. I don't know. But I think the intelligence failure and the lack of preparation are the two key and why. Somebody had to stand them down, I do believe. I mean, a Senate Sergeant-at-Arms, House Sergeant-at-Arms, I mean, where were they? What were they doing? And who influenced them?
0: to stop them. Right. Especially after if, it, I mean, we'll see what, what turns out to be the case, but it was reported that the Capitol chief, the Capitol police chief had asked for the National Guard and it was denied by the Senate Sergeant of Arms in the house, sort of the lead law enforcement person there. And that I agree with you. It, it does raise the question of, did someone, you know, did someone tell you to stand down? It just, it felt, I think it's a very, very important question. Just so everyone knows also on tabletops, because I think a lot of people might not be familiar with them, but, Literally my first day that the governor of New Jersey was sworn in, we did a tabletop. And I believe we did a pandemic tabletop. And this is going back to 2006. And what you do is you have all these high-ranking officials in the state and you say, what if this catastrophe happened? Who does what? And how do you, how do you think about it? And it's a really important thing that gets people to, to sort of start thinking about the what ifs in terrible circumstances that on the day-to-day we don't always always confront and plan for.
1: Yeah, a lot of people, they look at it and say, well, okay, who's in charge? But the real question is, who's in charge of what? I mean, you know, it's it, it's it's just who's responsible for doing what? And everybody being on the same page and knowing how all these things fit together, I know they tabletop in D.C. We always tabletop in
3: D.C. But. To your point, Anne, there, there were a series of cascading events of failure that ultimately uh, culminates into you know, the loved ones of, of Officer Brian Sicknick who are now going to be handed a folded flag. And something has to be done about that because that should have never have occurred. I do think that even with full preparation to this, an X factor, which I don't think any law enforcement agency could have foreseen, was the moment when the commander in chief gave the order to take the hill that gave a magnification to the crowd and to their efforts that I don't think anybody could have forecasted. Now, with proper preparation, absolutely this could have been thwarted. But even even then it, it would have been it, it would have been that much more difficult because of the permission given to that crowd that day to go accomplish a mission. And not
1: only that, he said he was going to lead them down there. He didn't but he said, I'll be there with you. I mean, how much more, you know, justification or authority do you need when the commander in chief tells you that? I mean, this whole thing deserves a deep dive. And I don't mean just into the police. I mean, and everyone who played a role in this thing, because there's something fishy here that we've got to get to the bottom of, because this is just, you you just have to know this can never, ever happen again.
0: I agree. And I also think that, there's been a lot of conversations about arrests and prosecutions. And so there are, you know, 50 plus people have been charged in D.C. Superior Court, you know, 20 or 30 by the federal government. I do believe that the FBI is out you know, across the United States now, and that they will arrest and charge the people who murdered Officer Sicknick, who, by the way, grew up in the town right next to where I grew up. And you know, it's it's a terrible tragedy that someone who was protecting the capital lost lost his life and was was you know murdered by essentially violent extremists. And and there's really no other way I think I think to see it. But I you know I'm a career prosecutor. We've all you know done policing and prosecution, it's not enough to bring individual cases. And I think your point about the 9 type commission that looks at everything is a really important one because an individual case holds one individual accountable it doesn't look at all the things that went wrong and there are going to be a lot of things that went wrong here that might not be criminal that just you wouldn't you wouldn't capture if you just did cases and so I think I've gotten asked you know almost every day about the prosecutions and it's super, it's really important I believe very much that people have to be held accountable who entered the capitol who destroyed property who uh, you know essentially put put lives at risk but it's not it's not going to answer the full it's not going to answer the full question yeah you
1: know after 9 11 And we spent all of our time preparing for, you know, uh, foreign terrorist threat and not a domestic terrorist threat. And I don't think, you know, that even though we knew these these far extreme groups were out there and advocating violence and and civil wars and all that sort of thing. I don't think we took them serious. I don't think we took them as serious. If that had been ISIS or Al Qaeda saying that stuff, believe me, we would have you know, it would have been a whole different posture. And again, you know, these are people that were radicalized, no different from the way ISIS has radicalized people, and others have been radicalized on the internet and through various other means. They were radicalized. In their mind, they thought they were doing the right thing. Some some of them knew they weren't, but I'm just saying that all those people were in a frenzy. They had been, been radicalized is what happened. Now, how do you change that? How do you Bring it to a different level, you know, deprogram them or whatever the term is.
0: No question. I agree. I mean, they they went there believing that the election was stolen and that the president had won the election and that, you know, what the president was telling them, we need to take our country back. And, you know, others at the others at the rally were talking about by combat, we're taking the country back. I mean, there was there's a level of of. That and I agree it's a it's a form of radicalization. And of course, it's not every Trump supporter, but the individuals that were there that day. There were a lot of, of, of extremists. I also I, I think a lot about the domestic terrorism, this question of whether we should have a domestic terrorism-specific statute that authorizes law enforcement to do more in terms of intelligence, because This meets, in my view, the definition of domestic terrorism. You know, people who are, you know, coming together as extremists and they're using violence to overthrow the government. Um, And here they were trying to stop the electors from having, you know, basically Congress from doing their job of counting the electors votes. But it is an interesting question. When you when you work in the sort of national security space, the Patriot Act and the, the federal legislation gave a lot of power to do that type of intelligence collection that is really very, very broad, and that does not exist in the domestic terrorism space. Now, that being said, there, in my view, there's plenty of intelligence out there that warranted law enforcement investigations and and a far greater response and, and preparedness here. And there's there's that line between what's protected speech and what's what's hate speech and inciting violence. And I believe a lot of these individuals had crossed it and and were preparing. But I do think that this part of the conversation is going to be a really important one of like what do we do about domestic terrorism?
3: Well, I, I don't know how much more we need to see to start classifying some of these folks for their actions. I mean, to be quite frank with you, we we looked at what took place out in Seattle. Uh, back during the summer of individuals that had occupied a city block and took that over and we labeled them anarchists. If I was to do a comparison of that compared to what took place on January 6th, I would say January 6th was far more egregious in those actions. So when are we, in the in the interest of, of protecting a democracy and protecting the institutions that we hold sacred, going to be willing to make those what may be unpopular decisions of? properly identifying those who are the threats to government and putting a laser-like focus on them and putting the full weight of law enforcement on them it shouldn't just have to be people with names that don't sound traditional to what we are used to hearing or you know are, are having a melanin in their skin of, uh, uh, at a darker content exactly like Chuck said you know if these these what took place on January 6th and their intentions was an in ideology, of the exact same ilk wrapped in a different package of of being white males with, you know, beards and goatees and tattoos and saying, telling the, the police officers we're with you as they smash them in the head with, with fire extinguishers and kill them. And, rip their masks off so that they can get the bear spray uh, under there to them. You know, what more do we need to say?
0: Can I ask a question? I know it's a sensitive question, but I think it's it's so critical that we have this conversation and think about where do we go from here, which is the number of law enforcement officers who it, it seems every day we hear another story that there was a, you know, Capitol Police that they're investigating, you know, 12 officers for basically either participation in the event or or you know, sort of symp- sympathy towards the extremists. But there are also a lot of officers that came from around the country. And, you know, I, sh- I say a lot, but like, I don't know the exact number, but, uh, you know, it's been reported that a number of police departments are are doing investigations. And it's even to the point where a number of chiefs I know went out on Twitter and basically said, look, at this point, we don't have someone or, you know, we have one. I mean, it, w- it became this thing where people were, were immediately disclosing it. But how should we think about this? And, and I think it just drives home for me what you said, Scott, of like, you have people walking through the Capitol. Some of them have Trump flags. Some of them have Confederate flags. Some of them have, have the police flag. And they're saying, you know, we're with you. And they're assaulting police officers. And and to understand that there were some officers off-duty among them, I mean, how should we, you know, how do we think about this?
1: Well, I mean, I my opinion is if they were part of the... Uh activity, the terrorist activity that took place, one, they should be fired, two, should be charged, three, should be convicted, and four, should go penitentiary. But why are we so surprised? I mean, you had national labor unions actively supporting Donald Trump, knowing the kind of rhetoric that he was spewing all over the place. Look at Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, where those so-called militias showed up. In fact, the, the kid is charged now with homicide. And you had cops giving them water and telling them, oh, you know, we're glad you're here. Right. I mean, look at all this stuff going on here. I mean, there's a problem that has to be addressed. I mean, it's embarrassing. It's a shame. But they should be treated absolutely no different at all. But but there's a larger problem when you see how some of these officers have responded to these far right wing organizations, Proud Boys, and so forth, right in Philly, they had a a rally. A proud boy showed up at the uh, uh, union headquarters. Now they were outside of it
0: at the police union. Yeah,
1: but they felt comfortable enough to show up there, right, and have a and and have some little mini rally or something. I mean, it, it's an issue that we've got to deal with
0: and i should just say i agree completely on holding accountable the individuals who were there with criminal charges and otherwise i do think the deeper issue is the is the question of you know the the fact that we have officers who are on the job who are you know supposed to Protect and serve all Americans and are out there, you know, associated with right wing extremists who are, you know, white supremacists, anti Semitic, anti LBGTQ. I mean, it's
1: look at some of these uh, officers' social media
3: sites and so forth. I mean, we've we've had to deal with it and it's it's scary. Police officers are a representation of society right now, and it is about this is Maslow's hierarchy of needs and people with self-identification finding safety in groups and where do they fall in, in in that and unfortunately it seems to be a binary option for the rhetoric that's that's taken place in the temperature to it is is do, do which side do I fall on do I fall on the the, the left and if I do it's it's not level they're pitched I, I, I'm if I'm left I'm far left if I'm right I'm far right and police officers will generally be conservative. And remember, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Even if you listen to the interviews of the people that were walking away from the the January 6th (laughs) attack on Capitol Hill, their perception of it was something completely different than what a lot of logical outside people who are looking in on and seeing that. And police officers, we cannot pretend as though they're not caught up in that same whirlwind.
2: Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. I think we should have gone on in and yanked our senators out by the hair of the head and drug them out and said, no more.
1: I'm absolutely uh, stand behind 100% what happened here today. 1000%. I think it's terrible how this election was stolen. I had to come here and do my patriotic duty.
2: And what happened today? I'm not sure, but it looks like they stormed the Capitol. People broke through and uh, raced through the building. And then the, uh, the legislators got scared and left. So we didn't certify for Joe Biden. So that's good.
3: And it gets down to a lot of the same issues that we're looking at in trying to debunk in police departments across the country, wherein there is this, uh, you know, this blue wall silence, and that officers will, you know, seek safety and being in this group. And then what does that mean to be in that group? I don't think it would be healthy to take the, the Irish Catholic approach to this and just pretend like it doesn't exist and think it'll go away.
0: I was raised Irish Catholic. I I understand that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> As am I, right? And, but there has to be a safe space for people to exist within the middle. And that comes from, from leadership. And, particularly in police organizations, there has to be, you know, the, how they go about investigating this, I think would be a mistake if they were just trying to identify anybody that supported Trump and then putting them on some type of internal hit list. But if you are showing support, if you are showing in, in the form of retweets or likes or rhetoric that is consistent with the anti-Semitic, racist, militia type of of language or postings, then there needs to be consequences for that because there is absolutely no room for that in American policing. Just two more questions
0: for you both, and I'll I'll let you go. I know you both, I'm sure, have had long days. One of the things I've thought a little bit about is that the the structure of the police departments that you both ran— you were the chief and you made the decisions and you, uh, you know, there were rules that had to be followed, state laws or regulations, but basically, you know, you're you're in control and command. The D.C. structure with the Capitol, it is a strange structure. I mean, I think if we were building it from scratch, we wouldn't build it the way it is, where they don't have access to National Guard, right? There's there's just, like, they've got to ask political permission. They have this partnership with the Metropolitan PD and the Park Police and others. And generally, I think it works, and it has worked. And so I guess the question is, you know, how much should we be thinking about, you know, they're obviously going to replace... completely the leadership in the Capitol Police, which needs to happen, and at the House and Senate, which needs to happen. And those three individuals have already resigned. But how much should we be thinking about, is the structure, you know, does the structure work for understanding that we live in this, in this world where there are international threats and now there are very clearly domestic threats. And so, you know, we, 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 have, to under, we have to believe that things like this can happen now that we've, we've seen it occur.
1: Well, I mean, I don't think the structure is going to necessarily change even as a result of this. But I do think that authority that uh, the Capitol Police Chief would have in an emergency, it shouldn't be a mother-may-I type situation whenever they're confronted with something. They ought to be able and have the authority to take some actions in order to deal with the situation and not have to run everything up the flagpole when you're in the middle of it. I mean, right in the middle of the crisis, I mean... uh, you know, the chief had to was trying to get permission to do this, permission to do that. I mean
0: I mean it's it's hard to even imagine in the policing. Like it you, is you guys would have just done it, right? And I, I as I've read the articles, I've had that exact reaction of like, you know, you would have done it. And if there was, you know, something you wish you'd done differently later, you would have, you know, apologized or you would have acted. Why do you think there has been no major federal briefing on this? I mean, there's been no real agency briefing. I have no idea,
1: and there's no excuse for it. The FBI, the DOJ. Uh, all those players should have been out long ago. Now, I know they had a, uh, a deputy director of the FBI, the ADIC, I think, from uh, D.C. Uh, Washington field office came out and made a statement.
0: On the cases just yesterday. Yeah, he came out.
1: Yeah, on the cases, right. And a uh, U.S. attorney uh, came out. But uh, there's no reason for them not to at least make a statement. They don't even have to take questions.
0: Yeah, Just to tell people.
1: But at least say, here's what happened. Here's what we're doing. Here's where we are. I mean, people need to see that. And why? I mean, what's the the answer to that, right? I mean, it's not as if they're camera shy. They've been out on plenty of occasions with other types of incidents, including over the summer, right? They were out.
0: Yeah, I can't. I I have no idea why this has happened, but- you know, the the sort of training I had was the worse it is, the quicker you go out to talk to the public about what's happening and, and where things are and where they're going and what you're going to do to understand what the problems are. And, you know, look, I think there will be plenty of blame to go around. As we said earlier, there's going to be a need for a really thorough review, but it just seems so strange to me to not have anybody speaking on it at a time where there's a national need to know what's happening.
3: Well, it, it was disconcerting on the day of the event. And I, I remember watching. Chuck Ramsey on CNN, and one thing that he had said a few different times is there is nobody that's showing leadership right now. There's nobody that's taking command and control over the situation. That was a a situation that ended up playing out in probably as worse of a a scenario that that one could imagine. Uh, And here we are more than a week after the fact, and we're still not seeing leadership, which really doesn't give us a very uh, warm feeling inside as the three of us here who are uh, former law enforcement career people. So imagine if you were Joe citizen and the, the the faith and the confidence and the legitimacy that you, you thought you had in your, your government and your law enforcement professionals and to not have that. I mean, right now, the only information they're getting is whatever's coming out on Twitter. And that's, um, that's a very sad state of affairs.
1: Yeah. One week from today, The 46th president of the United States is going to be inaugurated with all the security challenges that come with it. And so now is not the time to show a lack of leadership. It really isn't.
0: I agree. How do you feel about next week? How do you both feel about the security preparations?
1: Well, I mean, I think they'll be um, very tight as far as the capital goes and the uh, key sites. People need to Understand that a lot of changes in this inauguration were made because of COVID and it were made prior to Wednesday. Okay. So, I mean, the president elect was telling people not to come down because he wasn't looking for the big crowds and all that sort of thing. It doesn't look like there's going to be uh, the kind of parade that we've seen in the past, the inaugural balls in the evening and all that sort of thing. And that's due to COVID. But now that what we've seen after the 6th of January, obviously security is going to be ramped up. It's already in. National Special Security event with the Secret Service in the lead. They start planning for these things a little more than a year out. I was involved in both the Bush inaugurations at the very beginnings of the Obama before I left, but I'm sure they're revisiting their operational plan, their security plan, and it will be beefed up, And they, including probably background on some of the people that'll be a little close to the president, whether they're law enforcement or not. I think there's going to be some people that are going to get, you know, a real close look at
3: put it that way yeah, i i don't think i would be shocked if there were any issues on inauguration day i think you will then now see you know the multi-perimeter defense in depth contingency plan to an nth degree you know my concern is really more so across the united states different state capitals yeah other cities this is not over by any stretch of the imagination there is a an anti democratic militia that has been mobilized and has been empowered. I do believe that, uh, and I'm not a chicken little the sky is fallen type of person, but I think you would be you'd be foolish to think that this uh, born and, and ceased on January 6th. Even if you listen to the rhetoric of the people that day, uh, this 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 was not over, and they they believe, and they keep being they're being told. That they've suffered an injustice with a the theft of an election, and they're not going to stop until they feel so that they've gotten their justice.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, I I think you you raise really important issues about the threat that's out there and remains out there. So my first job in my life was in the in Congress. I was a congressional page in the House of Representatives. It is like I don't want to say it was my best job, but it was pretty amazing. All those tunnels in the bottom of the house. We learned how to run around and. The Capitol to me has always been, I mean, in addition to having that sort of personal relevance, it's always been an amazing place because people could walk in, right? And it's it's unlike a lot of other buildings. And, you know, we talk about after 9-11, like it still was a place where the public could go and you could go see your elected representative. And what I really hope, and I think, you know, it, it maybe it's more of a prayer than a question is that... Obviously the building has to be more secure and there are a lot of changes that are going to have to take place, but I really just, you know, it is the people's house and the sort of the United States Congress. And I would hate for us to get to a world where the threat level is such that we can't just walk in that building and look at that amazing rotunda and walk around. And, you know, I, I, I know it has to be more secure, but you know, is there a way to do that, that, that it still remains a part of. You know, the United States, I mean, we have over 300 million people and essentially, you know, 6,000 or 10,000 people have now done something that imperils the ability of all of us, I think, to to sort of be a part of that that building in the history of, of our country.
1: Well, I mean, it is a shame, but, you know, it's also the reality of... the where we're at right now, it'll still be the people's house. They just may have to enter it through a gate as opposed to just walking up like they once did, you know.
0: I'm okay with that. (laughs) And I'm okay with magnetometers too.
1: There was a time when the White House did not have a gate surrounding it. You talk to people who grew up in D.C. that are uh, my age or so, they talk about they used to, you know, play on the lawn at the White House. But obviously, you know, times change. So, You have to deal with the reality, still be the people's house, but you have to have the kind of security that you need to keep everyone safe, including those people that want to come and visit, you know, as well as the people who we've elected to represent us in Congress. I mean, this is every, the thing that really bothered me is it's just not a capital, it's everybody's capital. It's the symbol of democracy in this country. You think of that dome before you think of the White House. When you, when you think about, you know, and I think about the times when I was working in And be driving down Pennsylvania Avenue late at night and the sky looked black and that white dome just standing out. And I mean, it would send chills down your spine even after you've seen it like hundreds of thousands of times. And to think that someone, you know, had the nerve to deface that, to come in and and violate it. Believe me, I I get upset when I think about that.
3: I think that unfortunately, much like 9-11 altered our country in many ways. Think of just air travel and what we are subjected to that, you know, look, there's, there's no such thing. The greater the security, the greater the, the discomfort. And unfortunately we we have to continue as a society to adjust to, to the threat levels that we become aware of. And so long as what took place on January 6th uh, you know, it would really be ill conceived and naive to think that it can't happen again. So I do think that the comfort level can, is going to, to change, and if that means that uh, we never have to have another funeral service for uh, a Brian's uh, sicknick, then then so be it.
1: You know, I remember on nine eleven just real quick because I know you want to close, and I, I'm in Washington, and it was a very very long day to say the least. And at the toward the end of the day, you know, we did a quick press conference, and a reporter asked me. Chief, uh, when do you think things will get back to normal? And I told him normal's been redefined.
0: It was, it was on th- on Wednesday. It was redefined.
1: And I think we just, normal's been redefined once again. And we just need to adapt and adjust to it because it, I mean, that's just the way it is.
0: Yeah, I agree with both of you, sadly. And it was one of my great sadnesses on Wednesday was thinking that whether, it's, whether we consider it a failure of imagination that it could have happened or a lack of preparation. I mean, there's so many, there's so many, Problems that that happened that day, Um, and of course, you know, we haven't talked. And I should say this: we haven't talked very much about the president inciting the individuals. We've talked a little bit about it, and it's not that that's not critically important. It's just that today, really, we wanted to have a conversation about law enforcement, and and there were no two people in America I wanted to have it with more than than the two of you. Like you were saying, a lot of people have questions, and there haven't been a a briefing, and so I've arranged our own (laughs) briefing from my two favorite experts. So I'm really grateful to you both. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you. I just have one final question. When Chuck was reflecting back on his childhood and playing ball on the White House lawn, did did Lincoln come out himself and throw the ball around with you? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, George Washington himself.
2: (laughs) If you like what we do, is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margo Maley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.